Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. The level of hostility and anger awash in the country today has real consequences. Demagogues and hateful rhetoric have real power. And while some argue that such rage burns white hot and then dies out, as history tells us, what happens while it's burning hurts people. When Donald Trump rode down the escalator and attacked Mexicans and immigrants, it mattered. We saw corresponding levels of violence. After 9-11, George Bush worked overtime to try and divert hate against Muslim Americans because we immediately started to see a seething anger. It's no different, really, when we see protesters in other countries attacking America, burning the American flag, and taking Americans hostage. In a world moving at the speed of light, tribalism and hatred for the other, for those that are different, is everywhere, even in a small Kansas town. And that's the story we're going to talk about today with my guest, Dick Lair. Dick Lair is a professor of journalism at Boston University. He's a former reporter at the Boston Globe, where he won numerous awards and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for investigative reporting. He's the author of six award-winning works of nonfiction, and his latest is White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. It is my pleasure to welcome Dick Lair back to this program. Dick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. How did you first become aware of this story? From, I mean, you're in Boston. This took place in Kansas. How did it first come to your attention? Well, when it happened in, uh, in 2016, um, there's several points in this story that became national news, in fact, international news. One was when the plot was um, the bomb plot to kill Somali refugees uh, by some domestic terrorists in, in Garden City, Kansas. When that unraveled and arrests were made in late 2016, that was big news. Um, but it kind of vanished in the news cycles. Uh, it's overtaken by other news events very quickly. In 2018, when the men went to trial, and then in 2019, when they were sentenced, again, there are these flashpoints in, in national news coverage and whatnot. So there was a Vegas recollection of all that. But um, in 2019, shortly after the sentencing, um, here in Belmont, which is right where I live, right outside of Boston, I just got lucky in a sense that um, this is certainly the kind of story, a timely story I'm attracted to. But I got lucky in the sense that I have a neighbor, a, f a friend, who has a friend in Garden City, Kansas, where this horrific event unfolded. Um, and he was traveling with uh, a, a Somali um, refugee resident of Garden City, as well as uh, a local Kansan who figures very prominently in the story. They had been uh, to... Um, uh, appear at a panel uh, at Dartmouth College, and they were on their way home, and they made a pit stop at my neighbor's house. And they were in his living room, and he came across the street and knocked on my door, and I said, he knows I'm a writer. He knows the kinds of things I that are important to me and what I want to write about. And he says, I got some people in my living room you might want to meet. And that's, that's what began my journey into the story and then producing this book. And talk a little bit about the community in Kansas, in Garden City, where this took place. Sure. I mean, this is, um, I've been out there pre-COVID a bunch of times in order to do the on-the-ground reporting and research. And it's kind of mind-boggling um, in, in the sense that really, truly in the middle of virtually nowhere in southwest Kansas, you have what's been called a multicultural mecca. Um, there are a couple of dozen languages spoken in the high school um, in, in this town of Garden City. It's got a history of, 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 of 
being home to immigrants, uh, dating back, obviously, with the Mexican-Americans uh, through, through the last century. But then in the 70s, there was a, a, a surge of Vietnamese immigrants coming to town with the fall of Saigon. And then into the early 20th century, uh, immigrants from Somalia and other African nations who were fleeing their domestic strife. And the appeal and the attraction to Garden City of all places was, is work. There are these giant meatpacking plants, Tyson, for example, um, that surround the area, and they're looking for immigrant labor to fill their round-the-clock shifts. So word gets around um, in the immigrant world and and refugee world, and and it becomes a a magnet. Um, And the community has become, you know, it's it's actually been in some ways studied by some Kansas sociologists who have coined the term multicultural mecca. and have watched as the population, the demographic has shifted from being 80, 90% white, um, you know, through the end of the last century into the early part of this century when it is now a majority minority community. And again, it's, it's kind of eye-popping in the sense that in, uh, in the surrounding regions and the surrounding states, um, that is not the case in terms of the demographics. And this isn't far from where, for those that will remember, this isn't far from where In Cold Blood, the famous Truman Capote story, took place. Oh, I know. That's another wild coincidence uh, sort of echoing you know, in the background of this. is Yes, Holcomb, Kansas, is, is literally next door to Garden City. Um, and, uh, yeah, and so that's another kind of historical marker uh, in connection with this. As the community changed, as the Somali refugees came in, talk a little bit about how the locals adapted to that initially. There's been, again, what, you know, I've been there and I've been reading articles, uh, read articles by Kansas sociologists and anthropologists who are curious about this this changing demographic. Um, By and large, um, there's been what what they've termed a quiet accommodation between old and new, Uh, a a live and let live, get along and go along. Programs arose, um, the Catholic charities and whatnot, to help assimilate um, and settle um, the arriving refugees, whether it was, you know, language courses um, or other cultural, you know, accommodation courses and things like that. Um, into the school system at the high schools. There's all kinds of clubs um, that help, you know, newcomers feel welcome and find a home here. Um, at the because so many in, in again in the recent decade or so, uh, uh, the immigrants have been Muslims from African nations. Um, place, companies like Tyson um, have have done things like create prayer rooms, you know, at the slaughterhouses, so that the workers can take breaks to. During the course of the day, they've made other accommodations to to the Muslim religion, you know, all part of uh, you know making it an appealing destination um, for the newly arrival uh, immigrants to this country. And what were the politics of this community like? It's a red state, and um, and in many respects, um, locally that reflect it reflects that. Just in describing what I consider to be a welcoming humanitarian aspect to it, but. Um, it's also uh, very much a gun culture, for example, in terms of politics. Strong belief in in gun ownership and Second, Man- Second Amendment rights. Um, that's that would be one thing I'd cite. Another would be just a wariness um, that you find in more conservative uh, pockets and places around the country of the federal government. 
um, and and not wanting the government to interfere with their personal and individual liberties um, in ways that you know are different than say 50, 100 years ago when the government was seen perhaps as a friend and a safety net. Um, those kinds of ideas are, are very uh, prominent in, in that region. And talk about these militia groups, particularly the, the Kansas Security Force group that, that you talk about and that is in, in some ways at the heart of this. How, how many of these groups were there and, and how and when did they form? Well, again, over the course of the last decade or so, and it's not unique to Kansas, um, there's been an alarming rise in white nationalism and far-right extremism. And a piece of that is the a surge in the militia movements. All of this really accelerated um, for a number of factors during the Obama administrations, uh, having the first black president in the history of the country, um, stoked by um, far-right media and whatnot. And then, you know, come to 2016, by a presidential candidate by the name of Donald J. Trump, who promised uh, to enact a Muslim ban uh, if elected president. All these and other things are contributing factors to this, um, to a growing militia um, extre- and, and extremist movement. Um, and the Kansas Security Force um, was a militia that developed in, in Kansas. Uh, it had different divisions. Uh, the, the one that um, is germane to this story is the uh, Southwest Kansas Division. Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 a combination of of people with a, a variety of conservative beliefs. I mean you can't lump them all into into one basket as being, um, you know, uh, extremists and and domestic terrorists, which is what a, a core group uh, separated from them to you know to develop a bomb plot that's the heart of white hot hate. Um, for a lot of pe- for a lot of people, and and this is reflected in the book because um, there's this amazing debate between some of the militia members as the bomb plotters were looking to recruit some of the other members of the Kansas security force to join them and take action against the Muslims in their midst. Um, there's this almost philosophical debate and. Over someone's at someone's kitchen table, saying, "No, you know, we're we're a defensive-minded organization. The that's how they saw the militia. Yeah, we're going to stockpile food and be preppers, as they call themselves, of food and and water and guns and ammunition, in the event that someone comes after us, whether it's uh, you know an inter- a foreign terrorist or whether you know they talk about the federal government and Obama not wanting to leave office." Um, all kinds of conspiracy theories come into play, but but the bottom line is was think was their position that we're just going to be ready in the event all hell breaks loose. Um, whereas this breakaway group, and they ended up renaming themselves the Crusaders, the Cru- Christian Crusaders against the Muslim, you know, um, uh, penetration, um, felt that no, we can't be keyboard patriots anymore. Um, there are too many. They're all they, they saw uh, these these men saw the Muslim refugees as all of them being ISIS terrorists. And so they needed to be eradicated. They needed to eliminate from our, our soil. Um, and so they, that's where they concocted this plan to, to be proactive and to go after them. And, to, and in order to kill them. To what extent was local law enforcement aware of any of this? And, and if they were, how seriously did they take it? The, um, locally, I don't think there was a, a whole lot of um, 
awareness, um, frankly. Um, in fact, um, as the investigation into this plot, which was overseen by a couple of resident FBI agents, federal agents, um, they had all kinds of connections with local law enforcement, but they really wanted to keep the investigation very closely held because they knew that there were militia members in some of the local law enforcement agencies. Um, and they didn't want um, their investigation, which involved an informant, um, to be put at risk in any way. Um, so there was, you know, that was a little tricky for, for, for the investigation at the heart of this, of this story um, was, you know, the degree of which they could trust others in local law enforcement. Um, and again, on a big picture on, on, the, on the federal sense, I mean, the FBI um, was really slow to recognize uh, the pivot away from, um, you know, national security uh, being a concern of international terrorists like Al Qaeda and like ISIS terrorists um, and shifting more towards the threat of domestic terrorists. Again, a threat that, that gained traction and accelerated during the Obama years and after um, the FBI and, and they're not wrong to be concerned and worried about international terrorists. Um, but they were slow to recognize the signs that this domestic terrorist um, um, threat was on the rise um, for, again, a whole bunch of reasons, some of them political. Um, but on the ground, like the agents out in southwest Kansas, the two in, that were in, involved in this case, um, were, were kind of tracking it, and they weren't alone. So it was in, sort of in the field that they were picking up on. It. As recently as, um, you know, tw- again, 2016, 2017, the FBI director um, would give debrief briefings to Senate and the Senate and, and not even mention domestic terrorism would, would talk about ISIS being the, the primary threat to national security. Um, just last year, um, the FBI director talked about domestic terrorism now being the primary concern regarding national security. And who was Dan Day? Talk about his role in this. Ah, uh, Dan Day, he's a, um, a native Kansan. Uh, has lived his whole life in Garden City um, and found himself, I, I have given him the na- a label in the book in the book called The Accidental Informant um, because he is in, essentially, he's the hero of this story. Um, he found himself in a position in 2016 um, where the FBI came to him. They became aware of you know, militia activity in Garden City, militia recruiting. Um, and they became a, a, aware that Dan Day had apparently shown an interest in a militia called the Three Percenters, um, which wasn't really, he'd gone to a cookout that was a recruiting um, uh, uh, cookout for the militia. But they approached him and, and it started on a very casual, low-key level. Um, where the two agents uh, in Southwest asked Dan Day if he would join the three percenters and become the agent's eyes and ears, um, just passing along what he heard about militia activity. Again, it was the, the, the militia movement and, and some of their um, social media anti-Muslim uh, and Islamophobic rhetoric it even caught the eye of, of the agents, and they wanted to monitor it. Dan... Um, his back, he'd been a probation officer. He'd been a, a, a guard at a juvenile detention facility. So he, he had this public safety 
you know, component to him, um, part of the, in a larger sense, the law enforcement world. Um, and he was not working at the time. Um, and it, it didn't feel like uh, that big a deal in the beginning. Uh, so he said he would. And, and he joined the three percenters and began to pass along what he heard to the two agents. To what extent did he feel he was at risk? Because he also was involved in getting audio recordings, video recordings, everything. Well, within months, it, it took a turn uh, from being something that seemed casual and occasional to being full-time. And yes, his life was at risk many times. Because by the winter time um, of 20, by winter of 2016, he had connected up with uh, three militia members in particular, Patrick Stein, Curtis Allen, and Gavin Wright. And they were the ones forming what they called themselves the Crusaders. And they were the ones who were extreme in their hate, their white-hot hate towards the Muslims who were living in Garden City um, at several apartment complexes. They were the ones who saw all those Muslims as terrorists themselves, as as ISIS trainees. and they were the ones who began to conspire um, that we need to do something. And in some ways, um, heed the call of, of, of again, candidate Trump uh, regarding the, the threat of Muslims in America. So Dan gravitated to them um, and things really picked up uh, in terms of the seriousness of, of, of the investigation and the FBI agents. And by the spring, they um, the agents had Dan uh, starting uh, to carry a recording device to the meetings as these crusaders began slowly but surely to develop uh, a plot to build homemade explosives uh, that they could then set uh, up around the apartment complex where the Somalis lived in Garden City and then blow them all the smithereens. So it got intense, and there were instances where, um, you know, Dan's... Um, undercover status, informant status, seemed in jeopardy, um, and it got crazy. It got, yeah. And, and he brought in another FBI informant as a would-be arms dealer at some point. Yeah, near the end of the summer, again, it's, um, you know, as, thing, as, the, as the bomb plotters um, began to develop, you know, with the chemicals, they got past the hardest, um, and I learned about homemade bomb making, um, the hardest thing to do if you're going to make homemade bombs is to uh, build a detonator, a blasting cap, a primary explosive that will then ignite the, the fertilizer, which is the large explosive material in, in a homemade bomb. Um, they'd achieved that. So the FBI was really um, on edge um, and needed to, and, and a, as a way to try to take control of the plot and steer it to a takedown, um, they wanted and they introduced a, uh, a trained undercover uh, law enforcement person, a code name, I mean, gave him named Brian. And Dan Day brought him in, introduced Brian to the others uh, with this um, persona, this false story that he was a, um, uh, an arms and drug dealer of, of, uh, and the head of a, quite a big operation in that part of the country, in Oklahoma and, and, and Kansas and whatnot. The idea was for Brian to come in and persuade the others to like, Oh, well, let me, let me get you the stuff that you need. Let me put together the fertilizer bomb for you. They were trying to get the um, crusaders to slow down um, so that the FBI could again, stage manage uh, a takedown. 
What was a singular presenting event that really moved these guys towards doing this, towards deciding they were going to plant this bomb? There was. The, um, in a, the triggering event, uh, so to speak, was uh, in, in June of 2016. I think most of your listeners will remember this event. It was the uh, shooting in the, at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, where um, a gunman um, pledging his allegiance to ISIS killed upwards of 40-something people, patrons at the nightclub, um, uh, one weekend in, in June of 2016. Um, and it turned out to be the, uh, a bloodbath and the, um, the largest loss of death to domestic terrorism since 9-11. Um, you know, that, that act of terrorism, you know, reverberated around the world and landed in Kansas City. I mean, in Kansas and Garden City, um, it, Patrick Stein, who was kind of the key uh, energy force for the Crusaders, just kind of, and he talked about it, it, it flipped a switch for him. It, it, enough is enough. We've got to do something, take action. And that, in, in effect, uh, inspired um, their pivot from being just the rhetoric online and social media and at their meetings that was anti-Muslim and all that to saying, no, we, we have to do something. We have to, this is a call to arms. And that began, uh, they started to figure out what they wanted to do, how they were going to do it in order to attack uh, the Muslim refugee, refugees in Garden City. Was there consideration of what the consequences would be, what would happen if they were successful? They all figured they'd ultimately get, they didn't want to get caught, but they all figured they would. They saw themselves as patriots, as, as this is how we save the country. Um, they saw that you know if successful and they um, were able to, eradicate the Muslims in Garden City, that it would inspire similar events around the country, uprisings, um, while they were developing, using the chemicals and developing um, their bombs with their bomb materials. They were also writing a manifesto, um, you know, to the American people about this is the moment, this is the time to stand up, this is the time to, um, you know, uh, in, you know, purge Muslims from America. Um, you know, and, and they made references to, um, you know, other acts of terrorism in, in our lifetime, like Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma. They referred to him plenty of times. Um, in fact, their fertilizer bomb was along the lines of the kinds of bombs that he, bomb that he used. Um, referred to Kaczynski, the Unabomber, uh, who issued a manifesto. Um, Curtis Allen, one of the um, um, terrorists, was sort of the key author of the, of the work in progress that was the manifesto. And they discussed at length about when to release it before the, the attack on the Muslims in Garden City or after the attack. They talked about, um, they loved Alex Jones, for example. They loved Sean Hannity. Curtis Allen, Alex Jones was his favorite, you know, media star. And he claimed to be able to, um, uh, he claimed, he thought that Alex Jones would put him on the air to read the manifesto. Uh, when it came time, you know, to detonate the bombs. Um, so they were, you know, really just in a lather uh, of, of what I call this white hot hate um, that that was in an echo chamber of sorts involving social media and Facebook, all that kind of stuff. What role did social media play as you saw it? Huge. It was huge. It's how they found each other on Facebook. Um, these guys lived, um, all in the greater garden city area, but they weren't like neighbors. 
but it was on Facebook and the kinds of postings and the kind of chat groups for not just militias, but this white nationalism um, where they where they connected up um, and then sustained them because they created little um, chat rooms for them and their supporters and, and their like minded um, militia members. Um, yeah, I mean, that's it. it, it there's a, one of the themes is in, in the book is the role of social media and especially Facebook had um, in the evolution of of this particular terrorist plan. What did you come away with in terms of, of your sense of how widespread these militia groups were and how pervasive this kind of thing still might be today? Well, I mean, I think there's a direct line between um, this event, which was prevented. I mean, the good news is the bombs didn't go off in 2016 to the um, takeover of the U.S. Capitol on last January 6th. In fact, Dan Day, who was the informant in this case after that that um, happened last January, you know, called me and said, my God, if, you know, if Stein and Curtis Allen and Gavin Wright weren't in prison right now, they would have been at the U.S. Capitol. Um, I have no way of knowing, quantifying, you know, but uh, how large, you know, um, this this is out there, but it's out there. Um, and what's revelatory, I think, about the story that's told in White Hot Hate is that it's an opportunity to um, to see how something like this happens. Um, the why, how it, how it, you know, in a really gritty, granular way, how a terrorist is made and evolves to the point where they're willing to to um, take this kind of action against um, immigrants. Um, you know, it's it's we've unfortunately had plenty of of cases of terrorism, domestic and international, in our country um, since 9-11. Um, most of them don't go to trial. You know, they get they plead out and whatnot. Um, this case did go to trial in, 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 in 2018. And, and through the trial, it provided the storytelling resources and materials to really retell and reconstruct um, the drama and, and the events, you know, that led to you know, to the, a potential, um, as one prosecutor said, if they if they had detonated the bombs, it would have been worse than Oklahoma City. Um, so um, it's it's you know it's it's a real cautionary tale on the one hand, but like I also like to emphasize that we, it is an instance where the bombs didn't go off. So for me, in the end, that was a key draw um, was to not only be able to go deep and and the anatomy of of, of a domestic terrorist conspiracy, but also um, it, it, it was a successful investigation um, that pre- prevented a tragedy. So you move from this, you know, this hate into justice, justice that was achieved through um, the heroism of just an ordinary guy like Dan Day to finally this sense of hope um, regarding because, you know, the bombs didn't go off and you saw in the aftermath after the men were arrested a community that was kind of rallying, horrified. Somalis were horrified. Most of the Garden City residents were horrified and rallying to say, no, no, this is not who we are, um, holding rallies, making it clear to the Somalis who were freaked out. And many of them wanted to leave Garden City when they learned that some these guys were going to try to blow them up, reassuring that, no, you are welcome here. You can call this home. 
um, and, and be our neighbors and whatnot. So there's that, that, that's a positive in my mind, you know, a positive and an otherwise, you know, jaw dropping tale. And what was the result of the trial and what was their defense? Okay. They were convicted, um, for, um, on accounts of conspiracy to uh, build weapons of mass destruction. That was, those were the formal charges and they were convicted, um, largely with their own words. Um, you know, they, because of the secret recordings, I mean, they convicted themselves. Um, and Dan Day had to testify for five days as well. Um, um, and their defense was the defense that's often, and, and, uh, maybe I, I can't judge other instances, but have some merit, their defense with they were, that they, it was entrapment, um, that Dan Day and the FBI set this whole thing up, um, and Ill- illegally entrapped them into doing what they wouldn't have done otherwise, if not for Dan Day and the FBI choreographing everything, um, that was their principal de- defense um, of entrapment. And um, the jury didn't buy it. Uh, they didn't take very long to come back with guilty convictions because, again, I think the strength of their own words captured on those recordings um, overcame any sense that uh, there was any kind of government entrapment here. And finally, what happens with Dan Day, given that these groups and similar groups are still out there? Well, he's still living in Garden City, um, you know, um, he certainly has, um, gone through a lot. Um, he's gotten death threats, you know, especially in the beginning, um, you know, late 2016 after the plot was exposed and the men were arrested. Um, and he's suffered in, in other ways. I mean, he's, it's a, he's always struggled financially and whatnot. Um, but there was, you know, a, a huge toll emotionally in terms of the stress, the impact on his family. Um, but I mean, this is part of what Dan, makes Dan Day Dan Day. Um, he just takes what comes. Um, he did that before. This came into his life, and he continues to do it today. Um, he he's very religious, and he and his wife had lots of conversations about what he was doing as an informant and the risks he was taking. Um, and his wife was reassuring and said, "You know, God has a plan." Um, you know, and and they genuinely, truly believed all of that. Dick Lair, his book is White Hot Hate, a true story of domestic terrorism in America's heartland. Dick, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank you.